Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. On today's show, we're going to talk about something we probably don't talk about enough on Power Hour, which is political activism, how to translate our ideas into actual improvement of the political system, of the law, of the conditions under which industry works. And today to discuss it, we're going to have Eric Eisenhammer, who is the founder of the Coalition of Energy Users and who has had quite a bit of success in my own state of California uh, dealing with the often, for lack of a better word, tyrannical regulatory regime uh, and overall government. Uh, so without further ado, we will bring on Eric. I will have a lot of interesting things to say, I'm sure, and I will talk to you on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Joining us now on Power Hour is Eric Eisenhammer, founder of the Coalition of Energy Users. Eric, welcome to Power Hour. Glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. No problem. Always great to have a fellow, fellow Californian energy activist, uh, free market activist at that uh, on the phone. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into the issue of energy? Absolutely. I, uh, I had the opportunity to work on Prop 23 a few years back, which was a measure to postpone California's AB32 or Global Warming Solutions Act. And that's really what got me passionate about energy and energy activism. And after I got done working on that campaign, I realized that, you know, there really is not enough effective activism against the uh, costless energy agenda that we talk a lot about protecting the environment, which is a very good goal. You know, I, I think that that's a worthwhile goal. But a lot of times, nobody's talking about affordability. Nobody's talking about jobs. You are. Um, but very few people are, and, and the groups that, that are talking about issues where that doesn't even matter, the Natural Resources Defense Council, um, Environmental Defense Fund, groups like that, I mean, they're funded by billions of dollars. They, they have such incredible influence and power that I thought, you know, somebody's got to be a voice for the regular folks, for the truckers, for uh, for people who go to the gas pump and are looking at gas as the highest in America and and uh, want somebody to speak out for them. So that was really the reason for starting the Coalition of Energy Users. And uh, I feel like it's filling a void that really needs to be filled. So what are the core things you do at the Coalition of Energy Users? We, we engage in uh, legislation. So that when, when there's bills that come up that would harm impressive energy users, for example, the oil severance tax that would have raised gas prices on everybody, um, the low-carbon fuel standard, uh, a proposal that would harm the rainforest, harm the environment, uh, cause starvation in the third world, and raise our gas prices. We, we actually defeated something called the public goods charge, uh, last year, 
which was a subsidy program that we were all paying. It was on all of our utility bills, and it, it was a very small amount uh, taken out of each of our utility bills, but it, it wound up being billions of dollars. So that was essentially a handout program to renewable energy generators, solar companies, wind companies, things like that. We were the main force opposing that bill, and we actually won. So we saved California ratepayers about $3 billion with that victory. We also engaged at the Public Utilities Commission, at CARB. We communicated with about 10,000 grassroots activists throughout California. And, and we literally just started something called the Coalition of Energy Users Foundation. And, and that's getting a little bit more into the educational aspect of things. So we've, for the two or three years we've existed, been very focused on activism, on bills. But now we're getting a little bit more into the idea of convening uh, summits about issues like hydraulic fracturing. And we've actually got one coming up in a few weeks. And we're getting ready as well to start a course on energy. It'll just teach people the basics. Because one thing that, that we're really finding is that people don't even know where their energy comes from. People don't even know what a refinery is. So then when somebody wants to come along and, and spread lies, spread hysteria, and say, hey, you know, we should all get our energy from solar because it's free. It's from the sun, and the sun is free. Then you, then you can say, well, hey, why don't we educate people and, and get them to know where their energy comes from so they're not going to believe nonsense like that. So how long uh, has the foundation been in existence? The foundation's been in existence for, I believe, about two months. It, it, it's very new. So going back to the issue of affordable energy, it's, it, it's an interesting thing because it can be difficult for people to make concrete how, to their lives how much a higher price versus a lower price makes a difference. Can you talk about how crucial affordable energy is to each person's life? Uh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think that people don't really, don't really think about it. Don't, don't honestly even know how expensive our energy is here in California. You know, we've got a bunch of, bunch of policies that have driven our energy costs up to be, um, in terms of industrial energy costs, 50% higher than the national average. And our gas costs are the highest in America. But, uh, people don't necessarily know how that affects their lives, but they don't even necessarily know that's the case. You know, when, when we all live here in California, we don't have other states necessarily directly next to us where we live, we, we kind of just, you know, think that the way it is is the way it is. But, you know, it's, it's got all kinds of very direct effects. You look, at, you look at everything we buy, almost everything we buy is taken to us in a truck. So when you've got higher gas prices, the truckers need to pay more for their gas. That goes into the transportation costs of anything we buy at the store. So that means higher price consumer goods. Obviously, it means our commutes are more expensive. But I think um, probably a little bit more important than any of that and a little more fundamental is, is the way it affects what jobs are available. Because the, the jobs that are really the good jobs that provide a pathway to a middle-class life for somebody who doesn't necessarily have a college degree are the manufacturing jobs. And one of the most critical factors in, in the manufacturing process is, is energy costs. You think about something like welding. I mean, that's very energy intensive. 
and and manufacturers they're leaving California. Uh, now um, manufacturing nationwide is expanding again. It's expanding. I think I saw 20% in Texas. Not really, not really expanding much here in California. The jobs that are being created here, they're food service jobs. They're, uh, they're jobs in hospitality, you know, like being a bellhop at a hotel. And, and especially for people in inner city communities where, where they don't necessarily have access to um, educational opportunities that everybody, everybody necessarily has, it, it really matters what jobs, what entry-level jobs are available. And a manufacturing job, that's the $20 an hour with benefits, with a good retirement plan. And, and unfortunately, less and less people have access to those jobs literally because of energy costs. Yeah, I mean, from another perspective, part of what makes something a good job, I mean, is that it is that it it's profitable to hire somebody to do at a fairly high rate of pay, and, and a crucial amount of that is how much work you can do. And energy is the thing that allows you to do more work, particularly more uh, more physical work. And thus, I think what you said about uh, you said it quickly, but I think it's worth pausing on the idea of having fifty percent higher industrial energy costs. That you know, that for me is like a knockout blow in terms of if you want to live in a productive place, having 50% higher industrial energy costs, which means you might not see it on your bill, but you'll see it on the fact that um, all sorts of opportunities don't exist. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And one, one of the things that I find interesting is, is when you listen to the folks that um, want to dismiss this issue, one of the things that they'll say is, oh, well, you know, organizations like mine, organizations like yours, you know, we represent the old economy. And, and we're going to come to a time here in California, and this is total nonsense, but I'm just saying, what they said is we're going to come to a, a time in California where we're going to go to a new economy where it, it, it's going to be the Silicon Valley economy of tomorrow, and, and energy doesn't matter for that economy because it, it, we're all going to do everything online. And people like you and me, we're really more about trucking and oil, and somehow that's just going to fade into the sunset. But let me tell you, I have a good friend that works in the semiconductor industry who actually is going to be a speaker at our upcoming summit on fracking. And, and this guy, he's got one of the fastest-growing companies in America. It's called Soligo Technology. He's one of the founders of that company. And what he says is that his energy costs are, are, are the biggest reason why his company has not been able to go public. Semiconductor manufacturing is very energy intensive, and, and it's also very reliant on reliable energy. So it's not just the energy costs, although that's extremely important, but it's also the reliability. And, and because of the amount of wind power and solar power that by nature is unreliable being pumped into the grid, that can potentially be very costly for a business where if their power goes out, you know, thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars can be lost. Yeah, I'm glad you, I'm glad you stressed that issue because that's, that's perhaps the most understressed issue when discussing solar and wind. And they, you hear these price comparisons of, oh, it costs this per kilowatt or this per kilowatt hour. And my view is that's it's not just apples to oranges, it's apples to rotten oranges because unreliable energy is something that can only exist as a parasite on, on reliable energy. So to say, in effect, hey, like you propped up this guy on welfare, therefore everyone can live on welfare. 
Well, that doesn't make any sense, and it's a real insult to the people who are supporting the people on welfare. I, I agree. I, I, there, there was a study recently, I believe, by the California Energy Commission that talked about exactly that issue and said that if, we, if we're going to meet our renewable energy goals, which, by the way, we don't count hydro as renewable, and, and that makes no sense whatsoever because, obviously, hydropower is renewable. It's got zero carbon emissions. And, and, and the state government, in its wisdom, you know, I, I say that uh, jokingly, in its wisdom said hydropower is not, uh, not renewable energy. That's, that is but the mainstream position because it's the religion of, the, um, of Greenpeace and Sierra. I mean, my view is because it's practical, they oppose it. But in any case, that's their party. I mean, Sierra Club is probably the world's biggest opponent of hydroelectric power, environmentalist movement is. So the whole, not to interrupt you, but the whole classification of green and renewable completely amounts to whatever the green religion happens to support, which always corresponds to whatever happens to not work. I, I, I agree with you. And, and, and isn't it funny that one of the reasons why, um, why they're so against hydropower is the potential of harming some fish, even though there's ways around that with fish ladders and things like that. But, but isn't it interesting how silent they are on all of the literally millions of birds that are being killed by wind power. Somehow that's okay with them. There's one endangered bird that nobody's, al nobody's allowed to kill. I, I mean, you can't hunt it. If it gets killed by flying into a refinery, if it gets killed by, by a plane, you know, very large fines are, are levied. However, if a windmill kills it, that's the one thing that's gone exemption. Yeah, I mean, that is a big talking point. I mean, I, I, for me, in terms of the, the harm of involved with windmills to human beings, in terms of the, the proposals they're, uh, they're going along with or that they're part of, is so vast that, you know, the birds are so, so far tertiary to that. And it's interesting, even with hydro, their whole objection as well, it's interfering with the swimming patterns of this salmon. If you really wanted to object to hydro, you would do it on grounds of danger to human beings. It's arguably the most dangerous one to human beings, particularly globally, when you don't have all the advanced technology. I mean, a dam breaking, you know, we, uh, friends in Calgary, we see what happens when there's a flood. I mean, water going out of control in some ways is worse than an explosive thing uh, going out of control. But notice that is not the issue at all. They only make up safety issues to human beings when, with something like hydraulic fracturing, which is incomparably safer than these other technologies. Absolutely, and I'm glad you brought up a couple of things, hydraulic fracturing, and also just the issue of human beings, because I think that that's a great point, and I think that we've gone um, in the last 50 years or so as a society to a point where um, human progress, and that's one of the reasons why I like what your organization is doing so much, because you are celebrating human progress, and how did we go from a point where we conquered the West we um, built highways here in California. We, we literally made our state the envy of the nation with what we built it into. And I think that were the, the modern regulations, mostly, or, or many of them, put into place by environmentalists, uh, were those to have existed 100 years ago when we wanted to come out here and conquer the West, I think people would have just thrown up their hands and said it's not even worth it. Hey, However, that's um, a great point. Okay, but I, I, on hydraulic fracturing, I'm glad you brought that up because they are constantly saying how dangerous it is. And when you look, when you really look into that, 
um, it's totally unsubstantiated. It's people like Yoko Ono, it's Matt Damon, it's, it's Mark Ruffalo, and you go, well, none of these people's an engineer, none of these people's a geologist, and then you look at the California Department of Conservation, which is by no means a, a big fan of oil and gas. But they say how safe it is. They say it's a safe technology. So you look at all of the experts, people on both sides, people that are actually educated, that have degrees, that are all saying, yeah, this can be done safely. This is something that we should take advantage of. Even President Obama has been saying nice things about hydraulic fracturing and the way um, our natural gas resources have helped us lower our emissions. We've lowered our emissions to... Uh, the lowest point we are since 1990 nationwide, and it's mostly as a result of hydraulic fracturing. Yeah, though even there, that's it's kind of like the the birds thing because it's it's the, if we look at what is the goal of the green movement, it's it's to lower uh, emissions, so to speak, uh, to levels that can't possibly support uh, the modern population. Which is why ultimately, if you look deep in there textbooks and books, uh, you know, population reduction is ultimately the goal. You can't believe that there's f something wrong with a human footprint and be okay with, si with 7 billion people uh, being around. So I, I'm wary of, of even conceding that. I mean, it's, it's, I mean it's, what's great about hydraulic fracturing is the main thing is that it goes to what your organization is doing. It produces affordable, reliable energy. And the real danger there is that we don't get it. And that's the danger we face in California. And I love your, your point about settling the West uh, because uh, for sure we wouldn't have been able to do that. And people would have said, oh, yeah, it's the safe thing to do. Well, is it the safe thing to do to live to 50? Is it the safe? It, would we have ever discovered oil in Titusville, Pennsylvania? No, they'd still be filing the environmental impact statement uh, today. So it's, it's – uh, the, the danger of not making progress I think is something very underrated. Alex, well, I think that uh, I totally agree with you. I think that when you really kind of step back from it and look at it all um, a little bit more philosophically, um, I think that you see a big tie into Malthusianism. I think that you see um, that old philosophy from hundreds of years ago that said, well, unless we uh, reduce our population, uh, unless we, uh, you know, really just start to start to live small, we're, we're going to have mass starvation and life is going to be horrible because there's no way the planet can possibly support any more people. And it's a philosophy that uh, just entirely ignores the capacity of human beings to innovate and to advance. Because ever since that was put forward, uh, sometime around 1800, our, our population has grown exponentially around the world and people are living far better than we ever have before. Yeah, but one thing to notice about the refutation of Malthusianism was that for it to be conclusive, it required political freedom. Uh, part of the, the, the plausibility of it was eras without political freedom, without the kind of innovation you know, uh, without, that you mentioned, without the human mind really being free to create. And in those eras, yeah, without, without a lot of advancement, you could just in effect, eat up all of your resources and then be left with very little. And in effect, the Malthusian, Malthusianism is, is often a self-fulfilling fallacy because it tells us... You know, fact, it, yeah. it, it, isn't that interesting, you know, that, uh, that, that Carter and EPA and all of their buddies um, 
could wind up proving themselves right just by creating the conditions in which uh, we can't innovate. Because you look at something like fracking, you look at, uh, at all of the things that we've done. I mean, we've, we've got our environment cleaner while, while uh, reaching a higher level of technological progress. So, so I think that the, that the two actually go hand in hand, and, and it has nothing to do with government. It, it has nothing to do with um, government regulations guiding the whole thing. It, it has everything to do with human innovation and people rolling up their sleeves and saying, hey, how do, we, how do we make all of this work for us? How do we have prosperity? How do we have good jobs? How do we have a clean environment? How do we have all of these things that we all want? And and it's usually not the government solution. You look at the government solution uh, of MPBE, for example, how they said we got to add this thing to our gas to protect the environment, and, and it's going to be such a great thing. And uh, that was their brilliant idea. And uh, and look at how well that worked out. That that worked out to uh, to, to be tremendous pollution to the groundwater. Well, more broadly, I think the I mean, if you look at their quote unquote solutions. And even in terms of broad technologies and supporting solar and wind, which are the, the two biggest energy technology failures of the past 75 years, I mean, it's, it's in effect what they're doing. If they really can institutionalize that, which they've done partially to great harm, but imagine if it had been done fully. I mean, they're saying in effect, hey, you can, you're not allowed to discover the real answers because we demand that the real answers involve somehow harnessing intermittent dilute uh, pieces of energy. And if the solution is actually getting energy from stone underground, 5,000 feet, too bad. We, we're, that's not acceptable to us. And then, then, yeah, the Malthusianism is, again, a self-fulfilling uh, fallacy or environmentalism more broadly helps Malthusianism, uh, Malthusianism uh, come out true in effect. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Now, let's jump to activism uh, because this is this is some this is an area where we've done some really impressive stuff can you tell us a little bit more about about the victory because anytime i hear about a victory i want to know the architecture of it yeah you know i i think that the one that, I, that i'm the most proud of because we're really the one that took the leadership role is is in our defeat of the public goods charge as i mentioned and uh and that was that 3.2 billion dollar uh energy tax that was going to subsidize wind and solar and one of the things that I'm the most proud of about that is this was a thing that had gone out of the assembly and a friend of mine called me about it and said, hey, you know, it's, it's a tax extension, meaning that in the California legislature, it would need a two-thirds vote of support. That in the state assembly, it had already won, um, I think, pretty much every Democrat or nearly every Democrat, and five or six Republicans, too. It might have been eight Republicans. So this thing had, had, had strong support from both sides of the aisle, and this was right in the wake of Solyndra. So I was thinking, well, gee, at least the Republicans should know better. But it goes off to the Senate, and, and what I was told is, they, is my friend told me, she knew a little bit of, uh, had a little bit of inside information on it. What, what she said is that, you know, pretty much looks like this thing's going to pass and there's almost no way to stop it. But if your organization would like to take the lead in fighting back against it, uh, basically knock yourself out, <laughs> you know, because it, it was a lost cause. So we rolled up our sleeves and we're like, well, okay, this is, this is definitely a righteous cause. This is definitely something that we should be 
uh, taking a stand about. It's definitely something that's unnecessary. So what we did is we, we mobilized our 10,000 folks. We, we mostly do that online. We've got uh, a big email list. We've got a pretty big Facebook presence, pretty big Twitter presence. So we mobilized them online. I, I worked with, with a number of coalition partners, um, both from the conservative grassroots, and we also were pretty active with the inner city community. So we also got groups such as the Congress of Racial Equality on board and a few other groups that had a, had a civil rights perspective on the whole thing. And we got all these groups together, started sending in coalition letters to literally every representative, started getting our folks on the phone, um, really massive numbers of phone calls were made, started, started a petition, presented, I don't even remember how many signatures, but it was a lot. And, and we followed this thing because the politicians are smart. But when they sensed opposition, they, uh, they had one hearing. We turned out a bunch of people to their hearing, and uh, they didn't even pass it when we were there because they knew that there was a big crowd of people that disagreed. So a lot of them wouldn't even, wouldn't even put their vote in until the end. That's a little trick that they play. So they wait until the end of the day, and then they cast their vote. So the thing got out of the one committee hearing, and then just – Nobody ever heard of it again. They scheduled it. They took it off the agenda, scheduled it again, took it off the agenda, um, eventually killed the bill, dropped it into another bill. So they started, you know, moving the bills around. Um, and a few days before, a few days before the end of the session, they took a bill and nothing in it. They call it a gut and amend process, dropped the bill in, rushed it right to the floor. And, and you know, we had to rush. Tell our people, you know, call, get on the phones right now. I, I, I was up um, sometime in the middle of the night faxing these letters of opposition to every person in the assembly, every person in the Senate, after I had to run around and chase each coalition partner to get them on the new letter that had a new number. Because, you know, I can't just put their, put their name on there and all of a sudden it's a new number. So a ton of work, and, and they knew they were making a ton of work for us, so they wanted to just discourage us and make us go away. And, but we didn't. We followed it right to the end. They voted on it at, I believe it was 1 a.m. Uh, on the last night of the session. And I'm watching it online, watching the vote, and it blew my mind. We won. They needed a two-thirds vote. They couldn't even get a majority. Wow. Yeah. So that's, that's really impressive. So I just curious how do you keep track of all these little things it seems like it's hard enough in general and then here they're trying to uh to, to go unnoticed uh, oh, oh my gosh yeah it, it is hard to keep track of all of these bills and and fortunately um with the coalition of energy users we have a great team so i'm i'm fortunate that it's not just me i'm fortunate that it's, we have eight leaders and uh and then the, uh, the 10,000 grassroots folks helped too. In fact, um, there's another victory that's getting ready to happen of uh, something uh, that dealt with carb transparency, where, where they snuck in something that I didn't find out about until it was basically too late that, uh, that exempted the cap-and-trade option from uh, California's open meeting law, something called the Bagley Teen Act. And some random activist, the person that, you know, I never met before, never interacted with me before, uh, sent me an email uh, that, hey, you know, they, they stuck something into a trailer bill, 
and literally by by the time that we could do anything it was a few hours later, um, they'd already signed the whole budget. They snuck it into like page ninety and stuff. But I I don't know, you know, I, I don't know what kind of person would have time to read um a hundred page trailer bill um in a day or two. And it, it was basically some some random activist down in San Diego that had some time on their hands and read it and found it and then sent it to me. So we were the ones to uncover that. I, I wrote an article uh, that appeared in Fox and Hounds Daily and then um, let all of our folks know about it. And then it got picked up. It started to go viral around the Internet. Um, a month or two later, the Sacramento Bee editorialized on it on our side, saying that, hey, you know, that this, this really isn't acceptable. We love cap and trade. We're a liberal newspaper. But exempting it from an open meeting law, that really is not acceptable. And it looks like we're going to get that fixed uh, this time around. Interesting. So how did you go about building your, you mentioned a following of 10,000, and they seem quite active given that you could get them involved in this process. How did you go uh, about building that grassroots support? I do a good amount of speaking. So I, I go around, I speak to groups, I speak to conservative groups, I speak to uh, uh, inner city communities. I, I would say that probably the majority of our folks are more conservative. Some are small business owners. We've got a, a lot of relationships with small trucking companies, uh, small, uh, you know, regular contractors, the, the guys you see in the trucks with the, with the writing on the side of them. A, a lot of them are, are, are those kind of guys. And we do a lot of in-person outreach. We do a lot of online outreach. Uh, I go on the radio a good amount. We write articles that, that pop up here and pop up there. And uh, essentially, like with a lot of things, and, and like what we all, what I believe we all need to get back to as a society, is uh, we just work really hard. Yeah, that, that definitely seems to be an essential ingredient uh, in my, my observation about about these things, when you're when you're speaking, what do you think is the point or points that are most resonant with these groups, say the truckers or, or other members of the grassroots? That's a great question, and honestly, I'm not I'm not entirely sure how, how to answer it because uh, each group and each person can be a little bit different. I, I definitely notice that as you go from audience to audience, the concerns can be a little bit different. Like uh, in the inner city community, um, without a doubt, access to good jobs. You know, that, that's just, that's something that people are passionate about. People, uh, people in inner city communities, that they're not necessarily interested in the environmental agenda of uh, stopping global warming by, by, by riding your bike and eating organic food. Uh, th these are folks that are interested in having a good job. And, and that's, that's paramount to them. I think that uh, I think that for some other audiences, uh, especially anybody that's in the construction and trucking trade, uh, anybody that's dealt with carb in any way, the the idea that carb is out of control, a lot of people are fired up about that. Um, Wait, I, just I Eric, one, one second. I don't think I don't think we've spelled out carb. Can you can you tell the listeners? Because not all the listeners are, are California based. Yeah, no problem. CARB is the California Air Resources Board. And what it is, is, is it's, it's an unelected and unaccountable bureaucracy that imposes uh, various environmental regulations uh, on all of us. But unfortunately, 
it, it's been seen by, by many people, even, even people that are a little bit more on the left side of the political spectrum, to act dictatorially. You know, that there was a there was a little video we put together that, that went all over the place where a bunch of people came to a card meeting. I was there and wanted to say that it was a workshop on cap and trade and, and basically what a lot of us came to say was a public comment period famous like you know, they're required to have that. So same as uh city councils and everybody like that have a time for public comment. Uh carve it a public comment period for this workshop. And, and what happened was people from my organization, people from industry groups showed up and they said, hey, you know, we don't like your cap-and-trade auction. We believe it's unnecessary. We believe it's going to raise our energy costs, and we believe it's going to kill jobs. And uh, Mary Nichols got uh, so, so mad and so offended by that that what she said is, I can't believe that after I invited you all here, that you would, you would come here and, and say that you disagree with me. And then she <laughs> shut down the meeting right after that. So th- that's just an example of how, you know, cap and trade, you know, th- there's one that definitely fires people up. But I think, I, I think that one thing is, is just carbon, how, how un, um, unaccountable and, and, and uninterested in listening to, to the citizens they are. I, I think that people are mad because they're going, hey, those people at CARB, they already know what they want to do, and it, there's no point in even talking to them. That they've got this cap and trade auction, even according to AB32. You know, AB32, the Global Warming Solutions Act, it says we've got to reduce our emissions. But the legislative analyst office says that the cap and trade program the CARB wants to impose is going to kill jobs and raise our energy costs isn't even necessary. But they don't even care. They're just like on autopilot. They don't care that their low carbon fuel standard is uh, is an ethanol mandate that's been denounced by people like Al Gore. You know, environmental organizations even are all saying how bad ethanol is. They just want to do it, and they don't care. They don't care what environmentalists say. They don't care what people like me say. They don't care what anybody says. They just know what they want to do already and are are completely oblivious to any feedback and any citizen input they might receive. Yeah, there's a whole interesting issue of the interplay uh, among it, someone, you know, among politicians, and then all these these other groups. Which is just thinking out loud about it. I mean, that part of it is that they, the environmentalist position, is not it, it portrays itself as something that it isn't. So what it it tries to often say is, oh well, all you have to do is drive a Prius, and then you'll be fine, and then we won't bother you. All you have to do is use natural gas. All you have to do is put up some solar. So the politician kind of sees this as, oh, this is a, this is a valuable, this is a powerful cultural force. So I want, if I want power, I have, to, uh, I have to be in compliance with it or even use it to my advantage. And then what are like the three or four instructions? And then, okay, ethanol mandate, great. And then, then the next day they say, oh, wait, no, because their real whole agenda is lack of industrialization. But the politician can't wrap his mind around that. So I almost sympathize with them. They just kind of want their marching orders and want to do like their green penance or, you know, the, follow their green catechism and then be done with it. But, but that's not the way it works. Oh, yeah. Well, with, with environmentalists, um, it, it, it is very hard to argue with them because uh, their cause does, does seem really worthwhile um, when they, the way they explain it. That, well, they're trying to save the world. They're trying to save the earth. They love the earth. 
and uh, and it's really hard for people when somebody comes comes along and they're like, well, we got to do an ethanol mandate, or we got to do a uh, renewable fuel standard, renewable portfolio standard, whatever it might be. Um, when it's because we love the earth, because we're trying to save the world, because, oh, big oil is so evil, you know, that you, you hear that one a lot. And, uh, and, and we as a society have kind of bought into all of that and, and not done enough of educating ourselves, not done enough of questioning uh, what we're being told. Because I think that at the end of the day, yeah, you know, we do all care about protecting the environment. Nobody wants dirty air and dirty water. But uh, we have to actually look at what policies they're presenting to us and and actually question them and and not just go along with it because it's to save the earth. Yeah, I I disagree with that in the sense of I don't think everyone cares about protecting the environment in in the sense of the human environment because uh, if you look at what environmentalist policies mean, I mean, it's most obvious in the third world. If you don't develop the third world, you live with the dirty air of living by wood fires and dung fires, and you live with the dirty water that nature tends to give you. And so the anti-development position, I think, is they're really anti the human environment. I mean, they're pro, if it makes sense, the non-human environment in the sense of, but all that means is that anything human beings do, anything man-made is bad, and any time we don't take action to improve our lives, uh, it's good. But I don't know, I mean, environmentalists is ultimately the exact opposite of what they deserve to be called. Well, Alex, I, I agree with you that, uh, that that humans are humans are not a priority whatsoever um, to the environmental activists. One of the things that I find very interesting is that a lot of the regulations that are passed that would harm the trucking industry are are uh, are, are put under a uh, under a banner of it's for public health. So so they're always talking about because they want us to be healthy. But if you look at uh, at a map of California County. It, and, uh, and the rankings of those counties by how healthy they are, what, what you're going to find is that the counties that are the most unhealthy are actually counties in remote rural areas where, where they don't have any pollution at all, they don't have any freeways at all, they don't have any industry. And, and the problem is, because they don't have any freeways, because they don't have any trucks, because they don't have any industry, because they don't have prosperity, um, they don't have access to quality health care. They don't have access to quality food. Well, one of the best things you could do for people is raise their, their level of prosperity. If you want to make them, if you want to help them be healthy and, uh, and successful and to thrive. Exactly like you said, in Africa, you know, people are dying at age 50 and, and, and it really has nothing to do with, a, with uh, too much industrialization. It has to do with way too little industrialization. Right. Um. Now, going back to what you you gave a couple of really interesting examples earlier about imp, about what most resonated with people, and one I'm curious what you think about this because one one thread I noticed was that the things that resonated seemed to be the things where it was of real personal immediate significance, and I think often in energy communication we fail to make uh, the issues personally significant enough, and I'm wondering what you think about that. I, I agree with you. I. Uh... You know, I, I wish that everybody out there was like you and me and, and wanted to think about the bigger philosophical ramifications of these things because they are really, really important. But unfortunately, what I think is true of a lot of people is, uh, is people are very focused on their own daily lives and, and the things that are going on in the direct 
direct vicinity around them. And, uh, and they might not be interested in, le- in learning about what Malthusianism is and, uh, and connecting the dots from Malthusianism to environmentalism to whatever policy CARB might be proposing right now. What they're interested in are, are specific things that directly affect them. But like I've got a neighbor across the street from me, not particularly conservative guy, um, not particularly political, and, uh, and what he does is he installs satellites on people's roofs. And I don't even know that people that install satellites on rooftops have much of a relationship with CARB. But apparently they do, because I was talking to this guy one day, and uh, it just kind of came up what I do. And I mentioned uh, that, well, uh, I'm involved in an organization that does a lot of advocacy work against CARB. And I was like, well, you know, it's the California Air Resources Board. Have you heard of that? And, and I'm expecting him to, you know, not have any idea and not be interested whatsoever. But, uh, but what I got was that, yeah, no, he has heard of it. And, uh, and then I got a whole bunch of profanity about what he thinks of cars, <laughs> you know? So, uh, so that was something. I mean, this guy's not a conservative. He voted for Obama. But uh, this is a guy that when I brought up CARB, he, he's had personal experience with CARB, and it wasn't good. And, uh, and he was absolutely 100% uh, wanting to abolish CARB. That's, that's really interesting. It's, it strikes me, I just wrote down as, as you were talking, that one thing your organization is doing well, which I think we can learn from, is finding the, the very specific victims of these different policies and then empowering them. And my guess is that there are many, many victims of these different agencies who feel alone and who feel powerless and who aren't even sure what can be done. But if, if an organization can come to them and, and talk to them in terms of their specific problems, it could be very effective. Uh, Alice, I, I couldn't agree more. And in fact, um, I don't know if you've read a book by... Uh by Bill Richardson called Confrontational Politics. I haven't. But uh, you, you should check it out. I think you'd enjoy it. Uh, he's, uh, he was a uh, senator up here in Northern California back in the day, and a lot of uh, more conservative Northern California politicians kind of took their lead from this guy. He was uh, instrumental in founding Gun Owners of America, um, also was one of his, uh, his big contributions. Uh, Tom McClintock is uh, in many ways connected to him. So he wrote, wrote this book, and one of the things that he talks about is is the way that uh, especially people on the left have done a very good job taking people that have been victims of, of something and, and some kind of grievance um, that, uh, that, they wanna, uh, that, that they want to stand up about. And, and conservatives have more of a tendency to be very broad. We have a tendency to to support policies that are, are broadly interesting to, to a lot of people that don't necessarily uh, address the concerns of this particular little aggrieved community. And one of the things that Coalition of Energy Users does uh, absolutely try to do is we try to find different groups such as uh, construction workers and truckers who, who have personal experience with cards, for example, and, and say, hey, you know, th- this is something that you have personal experience with. Why don't we join together and, and do something about it? Or, or inner city communities, for example, who care about economic justice and feel like in some way the, the system has shafted them. 
and that they don't have access to the opportunities that, that they deserve and, and how energy costs and the lack of manufacturing jobs affects them more and, and they're fired up about that and saying, absolutely, you're absolutely right and, and bringing them into the coalition. So, yeah, that's really, I hadn't thought enough about that issue, but I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad you raised it. What, uh, in terms of, you mentioned the, the, the difficulty of being too abstract or being too broad and, and the pitfalls of that for conservatives or for advocates of free market energy. Uh, you know, if, if you could dispense advice, and I guess you can on this program, what, what other advice would you have from your experience in terms of being effective uh, in, in promoting the right energy policies? You, you know, what I, what I would say is probably the, the thing that I would suggest as my advice um, from my own personal observations about anything is that, is that I think that we need to be a lot more broadly minded in terms of who our constituency is and who we should be reaching out to because I think that inner city communities in particular have a tremendous amount of agreement with us on these issues and, and I think that sometimes I'm a conservative. I think that sometimes a lot of us who are more conservative tend to think Oh, well, well, people in inner city communities, uh, they, they just don't agree with us on anything, so it's not even worth um, going to them and talking to them. I, I think that one of the most important things we can do is just willing to shake hands with people, smile at them, share our beliefs and share our principles with them, because at the end of the day, our principles are absolutely right and absolutely true. And, and what we'll find is that there's a lot of people who we just haven't reached out to enough who very much will agree that the need to have somebody to smile at them, shake their hand, and show that they care. I think that that integrates with the idea of being more, sometimes more specific or more personalized in terms of activism, because part of what what guides that is finding people with individual values that are very consistent. So if we do, I don't know if you've seen, but at, at Center for Industrial Progress, we have a page called I Love Fossil Fuels, and there are surely Democrats who are on that page. You know, maybe West Virginia coal miners. Now, granted, they're probably not as Democrat as they once were, uh, but it's it's important just in anything to under to think in terms of individuals and not not just treat people as abstractions. And it seems like you, when you do that, you find a lot of of diamonds in the rough. Oh yeah, yeah, I I agree with you completely. Um, one of the things that you see is. Uh, a lot of my uh, my mom's side of the family actually comes from that blue collar Democratic background, and and like the guy across the street from me um, is a great example. Uh, a lot of the folks that I work with are Democrats, and and I think that it's important that we don't just say, oh well, you know, Democrats are all basically the same as same as that Greenpeace person with the clipboard outside of the supermarket. Yeah. That's what Democrats <laughs> are like. You know, it's like, well, that's, that's a certain type of Democrat, and I don't know, maybe 10, 20% of them are like that, but, uh, you know, we shouldn't write off the rest of them. All right, great stuff. Um, so getting to be time to wrap up, any, any final thoughts you have for the audience on this topic of, of energy activism or anything else? You know what? I would just uh, I would just kind of leave it with, uh, with with thanking you, Alex, for the good work that your organization is doing. Um, you know, I follow you guys on social media, and uh, and, and I really like the uh, the emphasis that you place on industrial progress in terms of human development 
in uh, truly making this a better society. And I would also urge folks, um, if they're not already following the Coalition of Energy Users on Facebook, our Facebook page is facebook.com slash energy users. I've got a website, coalitionofenergyusers.org. Folks can sign up for updates, especially if they're in California. I think that, uh, that they'd be interested in helping with the kind of activism we're engaged in. For sure. So again, that's uh, on Facebook, the Coalition of Energy Users page. You can uh, find that rather easily. I, I like it already, so you can do the same. And then there's coalitionofenergyusers.org. Eric, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you, Alex. Thanks again to Eric Eisenhammer for joining us on the show. I was really interested in his comments toward the end about energy activism. As I said, the issue of finding the right audiences for activism is really important, and it's one that I feel like I could think about more, and in the future I think at CIP we'll think about it more in terms of who exactly are the people that stand to benefit the most through supporting the right policies on an issue, and then how can we reach them? So what Eric was talking about with dealing with people in poor communities uh, who may vote Democrat but certainly don't believe in the environmentalist agenda, those are potentially a larger ally than people who maybe on the, on the right-wing side claim to care about energy issues but don't. It's po very possible the person with a personal stake in it uh, is going to be much more likely to be a passionate advocate and to get off his butt and do something than someone who just considers this one among uh, a hundred of different issues that he, he generically supports. So that's, that's a point to think about for you, and it's definitely a point we'll think about at CIP. Not much else for, for this week. Just a reminder to everyone, make sure to like I Love Fossil Fuels on the internet. So that's facebook.com slash I Love Fossil Fuels. If you haven't already, check out our open letter to American universities on the so-called divestment campaign, which is telling people that fossil fuel companies are so evil that you shouldn't uh, have any money in them whatsoever. Uh, maybe we'll start a, we have our I Love Fossil Fuels campaign as the counter to that. Maybe we'll start a fossil fuel investment uh, campaign, although don't take that as, as financial advice. Anyway, make sure to like that, share that with your friends. It's, I think it's added about 500 new likes in the past couple of weeks. We've had a lot of really interesting content on there. And uh, definitely we want to get up to 10,000 as soon as possible and then, then to 100,000. Also this Monday, unfortunately, the so-called documentary Gasland 2 is coming out. But fortunately, CIP will have a lot of commentary and activism around that. So check out uh, the I Love Fossil Fuels page again will be the best place for that. I'll, I'll write a review of it soon after. And uh, I think we're going to put up a page. So anyway, all you got to do is go to that page, facebook.com slash I Love Fossil Fuels, and you'll be hooked up. Uh, as always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Other than that, next week, we'll be back with another great guest, another great topic. But until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.